Well, good morning. Welcome to Burke Community Church. My name is Michael Coffey. If you're visiting, I'm the pastor for all adult ministries here, and we're glad you're here. The senior pastor is away with some of our folks over in Israel. We've got a few pictures of him in action uh, over there. If we can bring those up, he's having a good time, and it looks like the folks uh, with him are uh, having a wonderful time, too. How many folks here have ever been to Israel? Uh, Yeah, well, you ought to sign up. I think that they may have already filled up the trip for 2021. You got to be fast around here. It's kind of like buying Northern Virginia real estate. You got to be ready to uh, take action if you want to go on an Israeli trip with uh, Marty and the gang over there. So they're having a good time over there. And if you're a visitor, I invite you to come back. He won't be here next week. We're going to be privileged to have a Dallas Seminary professor, Dr. Kreider, who's a systematic theology professor and one of the more popular speakers speaking here next week. And then Dr. Baker will be back the week after that. So if you're visiting, give us another try. He is truly uh, one of the finest Bible teachers I've ever experienced in over 40 plus years. And we have him right here on this little piece of terra firma week after week. So I encourage you to come back when he's here. Let's talk today about why we have some of the problems that we have. In the greatest sermon that was probably ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus ended that sermon by saying that each day has enough trouble of its own. He's just told us, don't worry about how tall you are, what you're wearing, what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, all these temporal things. Instead, seek God, seek his kingdom first. He knows you need these things. He'll provide them all to you. Then he ends with this practical piece of theology. Besides, each day has enough trouble of its own. Now, that's a promise from the Lord, just like your salvation is a promise you can bank on. Uh, Since it came straight from his lips, it's not some days have some troubles and problems. Occasional days have some troubles and problems. He's just promised you each day has enough trouble of its own. So when we face trouble, when we face problems, is it because we live in a sinful world and we have an active enemy, Satan, battling against us, trying to destroy anything of God? The answer to that is very clearly yes from pages of Scripture. Ephesians 6, for example, says that we don't struggle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against powers of the dark world, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We are involved in a spiritual battle as believers. Uh, Satan, the enemy of God, is actively prowling around trying to destroy anything of God to include you as a believer. So we are involved in that. So that may be one reason why we have troubles every day. Is it because we're reaping what we've sown? Galatians 6 would seem to indicate that because he says, hey, you can't deceive God. He's not going to be mocked. Man is going to reap what he sows. You want to sow your flesh, you're going to reap from the flesh and you're going to reap destruction. You want to sow to the spirit, then you'll reap from the spirit and reap eternal life. So if I won't control my eating and I develop type 2 diabetes, I'm reaping what I'm sowing. If I need a liver transplant because I won't control my drinking, I'm reaping what I'm sowing. If I end up my life all alone because I'm so caustic to my wife or my kids that I'm estranged from them, I'm reaping what I'm sowing. There is a principle here that he lets us reap what we sow. You sow to the flesh, 
you'll reap that. You sow spiritual things, you will reap that. He doesn't stutter in this verse. It is a clear teaching. So we live in a sinful world. We have an active enemy in that sinful world. We do reap what we sow in this life according to Scripture. And third reason could be that we have problems or troubles because God as a loving Heavenly Father is disciplining us as His children. But Hebrews very plainly teaches, yes, that's true. Because the Lord disciplines the child that he loves. He chastens, he corrects everyone that he accepts as his child. Now for me, the way I think, I would want to know when I'm having trouble, which of these is it? Am I under spiritual attack? Am I reaping what I'm sowing? Is God, my loving Heavenly Father, disciplining me, chastising me? Because it would make a difference, I would hope, in the way I responded. If I'm being disciplined by a loving Heavenly Father, then my task is to endure it and trust Him, even though the writer says, hey, discipline is painful, but endure it. Be changed by it. Be turned into the image of Christ by it. He's a loving Heavenly Father. If I'm under spiritual attack, I don't have the forces within me to fight that, so I pray for a way out. I pray for God to rescue me. I pray for God to act on my behalf. If I'm reaping what I'm sowing and he convicts me of that, then I have a choice of changing, doing a 180, quit doing what I'm doing so I no longer reap that. I would like to know, what is this problem that I'm facing? What's it based upon? Is there any way to know? Would it make any difference if I did know? Let's go back to Hebrews for a moment. Hebrews 12, starting back a couple of verses earlier, says, he's writing to people who are thinking about leaving the faith. They're under severe persecution, and they're thinking about denying Christ and walking away from the faith. And he says, and I highlighted one word in yellow there for us all, that you've completely forgotten this word from the book of Proverbs. He's quoting a quote here from the book of Proverbs. You've completely, in the midst of your pain and your problems and your suffering, forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. And what's the word of encouragement? My son, don't make light of the Lord's discipline and don't lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And he chastens everyone that he accepts as a son. Instead, endure the hardship. God is treating you as his children. He's not treating you as an illegitimate child. He's treating you as his true child. For what children are not disciplined by their father? And he goes back and he talks about, we have earthly fathers and they discipline us. And maybe not so much then when we're children being disciplined, but later when we grow up, especially if we have our own kids, we tend to respect them. They at least tried to discipline us. They at least tried to train us. They at least tried to correct us. And so we grow in our appreciation and our respect for them. But nobody does it well as a human earthly father. Laura never liked it whenever I would tell my kids, look, we are not going to warp you the way our parents warped us. We're going to warp you in totally different ways because there, there is a fact that no matter how well you try to do it, you never succeed the way you want to as an earthly parent. But if you have a kind, all-wise, all-powerful, heavenly Father who does all things well, then as he says, endure the hardship. Even though no discipline feels good at the time, endure it that you can be turned into the image of Christ. So when I have problems, when I have suffering, 
when I have sorrows in my life. If I get the flu, or even worse, if I get cancer, if I have a car crash, if I lose a job, if I have a troubled marriage or a rebellious child or a difficult boss or difficult co-worker or I suffer a financial setback, should I look at those as God's discipline in my life? The writer of Hebrews, when he's talking about the Lord is disciplining you as a loving Heavenly Father, you've forgotten the encouragement. But you look at what he says they're going through. Some of you have been imprisoned. Some of you have lost everything worldly it's been taking from you. Some of you are being publicly rebuked and reviled. These are harsh things. And you say, no, this is the loving act of a kind Heavenly Father. You've forgotten the encouragement. You think, it doesn't feel encouraging to me. These are some rough things that these people were going through. So when bad things happen to Christians, are they God's discipline of the children that he loves? Or are they, because we live in a sinful world, have an active enemy, and we make wrong choices and reap what we sow? Could it be all three at the same time? It's hard to know these things. 1 Thessalonians commands us to rejoice in the Lord always. That means always, all things, even your problems. You rejoice in the Lord always. No exceptions. Romans 8, 28 says that we can know, not hope, not kind of, I guess, but we can know that God causes all things, all things, including your problems, all things to work together for good to those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. So no matter the source of the troubles that we've been talking about so far, there is a promise in scripture that you have an all-wise and all-powerful father who can work all things together for good. My responsibility is to rejoice always, trust in him, and listen. I want to look at a couple of passages, see if they lend any further insight on this. When you read the fourth gospel, the gospel of John, you read two very similar passages, and yet they have quite a difference in them, even with the similarity they have. In John chapter 9, he's talking about healing a man that was born blind. Man's been blind since the day of his birth. He's been blind for decades. He's never seen. He came into this world blind. Now the passage is going to teach he's not blind because he's suffering for some sort of human sin that he did or that his parents did. It's because he is part of a fallen sinful world. If we never had the fall in the garden, if Adam and Eve had not introduced sin into the world, there would have never been a sick baby born. Certainly not one born blind. It is part of living in a sinful universe. But in this passage, Jesus is going to contradict what the learned Pharisees and others would teach because the disciples are saying, so who sinned, this man? He was born blind or his parents? Because that is what Pharisees would teach. Well, somebody's got to be blamed. So the baby did something while he was in utero and God struck him blind and he came into this world like that. Or his parents, you know, sins of a father visiting on the sons. And Jesus is saying, no, no. Yeah, this is a terrible suffering. Decades old that this man has gone through. But he's saying this is here, not for the reasons you're thinking, certainly not for what the Pharisees have taught. 
It's an occasion for God's providence through my healing of this man born blind. And when I do that, I prove that I am God. Only God could take somebody born blind and let him see instantly like that. And because I do that, he becomes converted. He becomes my witness in the story that's being told here. He will never be blind again. He will see for the rest of his life. He will go into eternity with me. He's suffered for decades. Yes, I'm going to bring something good from this. He's going to gain eternal life. He is going to be my witness in this life. He is going to have that suffering turn to a joy. That's a hard thing to think about, though. Somebody suffering. Go back about four chapters. It's a little tougher. John, four chapters earlier, tells a similar story. Man who was paralyzed for 38 years, nearly four decades. This passage seems to indicate that somehow his paralysis may have had something to do with sin in his life. We'll get to that here in a moment. Because he's there by the pool of Siloam, he's trying to get in. A scribe put in an extra verse that's not in the original writings and it's in some of your Bibles, but it's so good you can trust the scriptures because if somebody added something to the original text, we'll usually bracket it off in the translations so you know that he's watching for this water to stir and so a scribe helping poor old God out puts in there that, you know, an angel would come down and uh, stir the water and then the first one that got in got healed. And so this guy has been there for 38 years He's lived a life not even looking at the world around him. For 38 years, he is fixated on a pool of water, looking for it to stir, suffering, hoping that nobody else will see it and that then he, paralyzed, can somehow get somebody to help him in the water so that he can be healed. It's a very similar story in the fact that Jesus finds him, sees him there, recognizes how long this poor man is been suffering so he asked him do you want to get well he heals him when the guy tells them the whole story he doesn't really answer the question he tells them the whole story about how hard it is to get to the water first Jesus heals him usual flare up with the Pharisees that don't like what Jesus is doing it's interesting in John 9 the blind man goes and washes and he sees in obedience to what Jesus told him to do when he put some mud on his eyes so he could see and Jesus circles back around to him to identify himself, that I'm the one that healed you. The man worships him, becomes a believer, gains eternal life, becomes a committed follower of Christ. Jesus circles around to this paralytic after it's all over. Later, verse 14, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see you're well again, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Whoa, that's not a sign of Jesus that we usually see. That's not a side to be real comfortable with, is it? And yet, God is the same Old Testament and New. People have died in both Old and New Testament for taking God lightly, for disrespecting God, for disrespecting who He really is. Old Testament, start of the church. Book of Corinthians talks about some of the Corinthians are not partaking of the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. It doesn't really explain what that means, but it says, here's the result. Some of you are sick, and some of you have already died. 
because you're not partaking of the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. You look in the context of that book, it seems to be that they would come together for a love feast at the end of the church thing, kind of a huge potluck. It was probably the only good meal some of the very poor got the entire week. A lot of selfish Christians are arriving early, eating all the food, drinking all the wine. By the time they go around to observe the Lord's Supper, they're drunk. And he says... You're disrespecting your brothers. You're treating each other selfishly. You're certainly disrespecting the Lord. You're doing this in an unworthy manner. Some of you are sick. Some of you have already died because of it. We need to remember that side of the Lord, that he is holy. He will have his glory. I don't know what this man's issue was. I find it interesting. This is the only place that Jesus turns around and does something like this. Stop sinning before something worse happens to you. Closest you come to that is a woman that was caught in adultery. That is, everybody dropped the rocks that they were going to stone her with when Jesus told them, hey, fine, you who's first, you know, without sin, go ahead. And everybody drops the rocks, start going away, and Jesus says, woman, where are your accusers? And she says that they're not here. And he's a little softer. He says, yeah, and I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. She has no choice about not sinning any more than I do or you do. Stop doing what you're doing, living that life, that immoral lifestyle that nearly got you dead here on the street today. Stop, repent, turn. That's the closest to this, but it sounds even a little softer when he does it to the adulterous woman. So we need to look at that. We need to recognize that that is a side of God that we need to remember well in our lives. He is holy. He expects to be treated as holy. When you look at the book of Job, which is kind of the paramount book about suffering in the scriptures, the very beginning of the book, it's very clear that Job has not done anything worthy of the suffering that's going to follow on that book. In fact, God commends him to Satan. Have you considered my servant Job? And Satan is like, yeah, give him to me. For a little while we'll see how long this god worship thing lasts and at the end of that all that job suffers all the help that his friends thought that they were going to give him that boy you must have done something you know look how you're suffering you must have done something along the way the only explanation that's given at the end when god comes on the scene and starts talking directly to job and his friends isn't much of an explanation but it is a powerful teaching. It's an appeal to trust the living God whose power, knowledge, is greater, infinitely greater than anything I have or you have. That's kind of the message of the book. Secret things belong to me, the Lord your God. But I'm powerful, I'm smarter, I'm greater. Trust in me even in the midst of your suffering. So from those passages, I want to draw three important inferences. First of all, I'm likely to be wrong if I try to take any one passage of Scripture and treat it as though it applies to all suffering. It won't. What he said to the man who was a paralytic wouldn't apply to the blind man who was born blind. So one passage isn't going to explain everything about suffering. That's why it's important to be in the Word, to be able to mesh it together. And so it would be foolish just as it would be foolish to take one passage and try to explain all suffering with it. It would be foolish for me to have a problem or trouble coming in my life and have one answer. Well, I guess I've sinned somehow or another. God is after me. He's punishing me to get my attention because of a specific sin in my life. No, that's applying one 
thing to suffering and it might not fit. It would be equally foolish not to slow down, to be quiet before the Lord, to see if he's trying to get my attention through the problem, through what I'm suffering, through the pain. C.S. Lewis wrote years ago that pain is God's megaphone. I hear him then when I don't hear him any other time. And I want to stop for a moment and distinguish. If you've been doing a ranger drone on me during the sermon, that's okay. But pay attention to, uh, to what I'm about to say right now. Uh, hopefully this will be worth the price of admission to you. I want to make a distinction here between the conviction of the Holy Spirit and spiritual battle and spiritual attacks by Satan. When Satan, who is the father of lies and the accuser of the brethren, starts attacking you, it is a constant, unrelenting messaging that you are such a sinner, you are such a hypocrite, you're weak, you're a worthless follower of Christ, you always mess up. In fact, you're never going to be any good. You are doing more harm, in fact, than good for the kingdom of God. It's relentless. It's hour after hour, minute after minute. Doesn't matter if it's two o'clock in the morning, you're lying there looking at the ceiling and you're feeling so worthless and the voice just seems to run in your head that I'll never be any good. I'm such an embarrassment. I'm such a mess up. He's the accuser of the brethren. He's the liar. But it's always very vague, but it's so oppressive, so heavy, how terrible the lies are about you. The Holy Spirit, on the other hand, is always very specific. Michael, you spoke harshly to Laura this morning. All the poor woman did was ask you a question. And you were practically cruel in the way you responded. You lied. You so exaggerated to Marty, your boss, to make you look better. You know that God has blessed you financially, Michael, but you haven't chosen to give anything to his work from that abundance that he seems to be giving you this year with a financial blessing. You wouldn't even roll down the window on a cold day and give the guy standing on a street corner a dollar when I've just given you so much money here recently through the stock market or whatever. You wouldn't even do that. You didn't share your faith with your brother-in-law, even though he seemed interested in talking about spiritual things for the first time in the 10 years you've known him. You waffled. You wimped out. You didn't talk to him. See the difference there? See how specific the Holy Spirit is when he convicts of sin versus just this, oh, you are so worthless. You are so terrible. You do such harm for the kingdom of God. One vague, unrelenting, one always very specific. Turn, go take action about what I just convicted you of to do. Second inference I want to make. In any problem, in any suffering, God is no doubt doing many things. Maybe hundreds, maybe thousands of things. I can probably at best detect one or two, maybe on a really good day, about three to five. For example, a godly woman in her middle years is diagnosed with stage four breast cancer. What is God doing? Now my little brain can imagine some possibilities. 
On one level, he may providentially be allowing the effects of the fall of man and sin in this world to take its course and in that serve as a reminder to her and anyone that knows her and her family or friends that we're all going to die. You are not going to be the first Christian that is not going to die. Apart from the Lord returning and rapturing you up, you too will face death. And so, just like John Dunn says in his poem, don't go see for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for you. You're in the queue to die as well. So it's a reminder when we hear of a sister or a brother that's suffering on this. He may be preparing her for eternity. Think about what a great grace it would be if the doctors tell you, we don't see how you're going to still be here and three to six months, to know that, well, there's some things I want to say. There's some things I want to put in order. There's some things I want to do. There's a grace in that. Maybe that he is shocking her 20-something-year-old son who's been living in rebellion or certainly indifferent to the gospel to prod him into a self-examination and repentance. He may be using her testimony about the joy of the Lord even in the midst of suffering the cancer that she has to call another of her child into some sort of vocational ministry. I remember one time whenever I was on staff with a group, it it used to be called Campus Crusade, now it's called Crew. I didn't have any money. Uh, You know, God uh, used that problem in my life, I think, to uh, make sure that I uh, stayed close to him. And I was driving a student uh, one time in my Pinto, a <laughs> fire trap that that thing was, uh, wrecked on three sides. And as I'm sitting at a traffic light, the clutch cable burst, boom, right there. It kind of lurched to a stop. We got out, pushed it on the side of the road, started walking. I'm sitting there silently uh, thinking, how in the world am I going to get the money for this, knowing I'm going to low crawl underneath a uh, pinto in a junkyard somewhere and beat away the snakes and try to drop uh, a couple of things. And I'm doing all this. The student's talking to me, and finally I just turned to him and said, I'm having a problem, so we have to sing a hymn. And we started walking down the road and uh, (laughs) singing a hymn. Later on, when he joined staff with the Campus Crusade, he said that was the moment that he decided, I'm going to come on staff with the Crusade. If somebody can sit here and be walking down a hot road uh, singing a hymn when his car just busted, maybe he's using her sickness in somebody's life. He may be using her as a way to teach people in the church what it looks like to die well. Just a couple of weeks ago, we lost a dear brother, just a saint of a man to me. Bill McFadden. And as his body started wearing out on him so he couldn't stand, he was losing his mobility as his mind was starting to slip, he would sit there and sing songs to anybody that would come along and sing with him, praise songs to the Lord. He showed a lot of us what it was to die well. He may be teaching her husband to slow down, care for his family, and then principal other people instead of always endlessly working, work that you're not going to take with you into eternity. He may be letting her go now so that she's spared watching the moral destruction of a child that she loves so much. It may be that she's got some bitterness and hate in her life and he's using the problems or the suffering or the illness or whatever to say, why don't you let that go? Why don't you instead lean on my power to be like Christ so even surrounded in a garbage heap dying a horrible death, he can say, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. 
Why don't you let that bitterness and that hate go? Perhaps she'd been praying for years for a lot of her relatives to convert, to come to faith. And her death and the way she dies leads them to that. She would gladly give her life for that, knowing she's going to have to die someday anyway, that if it would give eternity to all these people I've been praying for all these years, that's a good way to go. You see the point. A problem comes. Suffering happens. You come to me as a pastor for guidance. I might be able to say, well, perhaps God is doing this or that. Two or three things. He's doing hundreds. How audacious for me to think, well, he's doing this, but not that. Uh, in reality, he's doing this and this and this and this and this. Hundreds of things because of who he is, because of the way that he works in his world. I do know this from the pages of Scripture. Nobody else has sent his son to suffer and die for me and save me from my lowly estate when I couldn't save myself. And because he did that, then I can trust him in the midst of whatever is coming into my life. Third inference, it follows that when we have suffering of any kind, we should use that occasion for self-examination. But like I said, remember the difference between the Accusations of Satan and the conviction of the Holy Spirit. God may be speaking to us in the language of a wise heavenly father who corrects those that he loves. That's why that passage in Hebrews talks about the encouragement, the love. Because he loves you, he is going to punish you. He is going to chasten you. He is going to turn you into the image of Christ. He's not going to let you alone to your own devices. It may be that he's toughening me up because I am in a spiritual battle, as we said, with an active enemy, and I need to be toughened up. So he lets some problems come, kind of like a basic training thing to toughen me up. He may be challenging my thinking that because my sweet Laura has been feeding me free-range asparagus for 40 years that I'm not going to live forever. <laughs> I'm still going to die someday should be that because I think, well, I'm a Christian, I try to be nice to everybody, so I should just have nice encounters, not in a fallen world. In fact, that may be why he's letting you have not-so-nice encounters. That is one of your main witnesses. Is, well, he doesn't act the same way whenever I bite him back like I do everybody else. Romans 8.28, we can know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him. All things. First Thessalonians, rejoice always, no matter what it is. Rejoice. So in one sense, it doesn't matter. Do I have problems because I'm in a fallen world with an active enemy? Yes. Do I have problems because I'm reaping what I've sown? Yes. Do I have problems because I have a loving Heavenly Father who's disciplining me? Yes. The solution is the same. Run to the cross. And he who died for your soul is a kind heavenly father who wants to turn you into the image of his son. When we realize anew that which of us could ever truly stand before God if he treated us as our sins deserved. But he doesn't, does he? He treats us as children that he loved and he's willing to die for. So, each day does have enough trouble. 
of its own. But the solution is the same. I want to close out here. He's the good shepherd. Um, most of us don't have very much to do with sheep, so we don't really understand much about sheep. But they're prone to a lot of skin diseases, a lot of mites, a lot of fleas, a lot of flies, a lot of things. And it's a torturous thing for the sheep once their skin and all gets infected. So if you care for the sheep as a good shepherd, you're going to put them through a sheep dip. Well, if you've never seen a sheep dip, let's show you one here, all right? <laughs> it's full of fungicide and, uh, you know, herbicide and things like that. And they put them in and they shove their head under and the sheep are thinking, wait, wait, I thought you were the good shepherd. And uh, then the guy watching what happened to his fellow sheep there, he's like, whoa, bad for Fred. Oh, oh and now it's me. <laughs> And I'm kind of this white sheep. Hey, I'm not going in there. He's watching everybody else. And so he starts fighting. And even when God's got him in, I'm not going under that. No way. No, I'm, I'm, you're not going to put me under that. that. That's us. When the problems, when the suffering comes. And yet he is the good shepherd. And so no matter what the source of the problems is, trust in the Lord who does all well and be his witnesses in the midst of the suffering and the problems. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that you told us the truth. Each day does have trouble. Thank you also that you live inside of us. Thank you that you've given us your perfect word. Thank you that as a Heavenly Father, you don't leave us to ourselves, but you choose to discipline us. Protect us from evil as you taught us to pray and from the evil one. Help us to turn when you convict us specifically of sin in our life and not to be rebellious. Help us to trust you each and every day with all of its troubles, we pray. Amen. Thank you for your attendance here this morning. It was great to see you.